Hi, this is Ken Clark, and I'm the minister of the Old First Church in Bennington, Vermont. This is another recording of our worship services at the Old First Church. They allow us to worship remotely in this unusual year. The services will be posted weekly on our website, and they're also found as a podcast, A Walk to Clio Hall, on Anchor, Spotify, and other broadcast apps. This service is intended for March 15th, 2021. The organist is Jean Marie Callahan, and the preacher is Ken Clark.
Welcome to the Old First Church in Bennington, Vermont. Please join me, if you will, in saying responsibly our opening words found in the order of service. The Lord has done great things. Restore our health and faith. God's love and mercy abide. Revive our spirits this day. Our hymn is Be Thou My Vision. Join me, if you will, in saying our opening prayer. Christ be with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ where I lie, Christ where I sit. Christ where I arise, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Salvation is of the Lord. O Lord, hear our prayer. Amen. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. If we confess our faults, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen.
first lesson today in our Lenten season is taken from the Old Testament in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. This is the portion of the Old Testament where they're describing still some of the wanderings of the Hebrew people after their exodus out of Egypt from slavery under the leadership of Moses. From Mount Hor, they set out by way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look upon at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it upon a pole, and whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look upon the serpent of bronze and live. Here ends our first lesson. Our hymn is, The King of Love My Shepherd Is.
second lesson today is taken from Paul's letter to the Ephesians in the second chapter, verses 1 through 10. Paul writes, You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of our flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Here ends the second lesson. I have a lot to say today, and I want to keep it short, so we'll see how it goes. It's a combination of... uh, history and and other things, but my aim is to be relatively brief and to begin by noting that uh, hymns that we sing today are hymns having to do with uh, St. Patrick's Day coming up, which we will be acknowledging this week. We tend not to mark many saints days, but for me, I'm partial to marking St. Patrick's Day, perhaps because it comes in the the dark night of Lent, and uh, there's something that seems to relax some of that perspective, have some personal reasons for being fond of the land that St. Patrick served. And I look today in our readings, particularly in the book of Numbers, about the reading about the serpent. And uh, that's not sure whether they put that in there for St. Patrick or not. There's so much there in that reading, and I'm tempted to go in a hundred different ways on this, Partly it has to do with vaccination, doesn't it? The serpent of bronze, the thing that may kill you, made into an object of health, the caduceus. I preached on this before, and I I love those sermons, and that's such a great way to go. That caduceus, when I say that, that's that thing you see on the back of an ambulance with the uh, cross and the serpent going up, and the idea that the, the thing that might bring you death is also in moderate amount the thing that might make you well. But we associate this in March, mid-March, this idea of the serpents, perhaps with St. Patrick. Also, and I want to make another connection here, this started, well, maybe perhaps back in Christmas when I was uh, given the gift of a a book uh, to read about the uh, Irish famine of the 1840s, and then reinforced even further several weeks ago, now back in the month of uh, February, when we spoke about Black History Month and Swing Low, Sweet Chariot and the hymn tune 
telling the story of how it was associated with the Trail of Tears and the Choctaw Indians. Go back, if you can, to that sermon, perhaps revisit it, and understand that at that time, Wallace Willis was an Irish Choctaw mix person, and he was forced to leave his home and travel, as all the Choctaws and other Indian nations were forced to travel, to evacuate their homeland, to make way for others to occupy that land and instead go out to the lands around Oklahoma. It was that Trail of Tears and part of that story that connects with the Irish because during the 1840s, barely 10 years after the Choctaw had been settled in this new land, they had occasion to participate in a collection to relieve to the extent that any relief could be possible, to relieve some of the strictures and some of the pain of the famine in Ireland. And the Choctaws, who had been through so much, gave, it is estimated, I think about $170. Uh, In our terms, it would be about $5,218 today, a significant amount for a people who had been dispossessed who themselves had lost a significant portion of their nation uh, through death on that terrible trail of tears. Uh, The Irish and the Choctaw tribe have stayed uh, connected, and indeed there's been interchange these past few years, and there's even a monument in Ireland, and the Irish president has come over here uh, to the uh, Choctaw lands in Oklahoma, uh, she is the only female uh, chief uh, of the Choctaw tribe, which she was made. So there's an interesting uh, connection there. But it drives us back in many ways to this idea of what went on. And usually I'll talk about perhaps St. Patrick, uh, some aspect of uh, that part of St. Patrick's Day. But I want to focus this year on this question of uh, the Irish famine. And again, turning not just to the image of the serpent, but as we read in the book of Numbers, the people became impatient. The people of Israel became impatient. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. They were eating manna from heaven, um, but they wanted more. They wanted to survive and thrive. The Irish were in a position in the 1840s that manna from heaven would have been an answered prayer to them. And in fact, they received manna in a different way. I'm going to tell a little bit about a story today, and it's detailed in a book by a fellow named Stephen Puglio, A Voyage of Mercy, about the use of a United States ship, the Jamestown, to bring the first load of sustenance, of food, to the famished Ireland. And so I'm going to refer to this story a little bit in terms of talking today. A voyage of mercy, and that is an important part of, that was their banner. That was the answer to prayers, although it didn't stop what happened. And what happened in Ireland was fully horrendous, horrid, 
The words don't describe it, do they? Um, 20 to 25 percent of the population in the years 1845 to 52 would die. A million people would be dead in Ireland out of a population of 8 million. Another million people of that would emigrate to other lands, not just to America, but to Canada and Australia. The failure of a potato crop would be the cause of this distress, but it wasn't simply the failure of a potato crop. It was the failure of a government that had mismanaged a situation and created a crisis And in fact, a government that when the crisis was upon them, ineffectually tried to resolve that crisis. Oddly enough, it was the response of voluntary organizations from around the world who would try to respond in lieu of a government in London, which was completely seem completely incapable of response to this question. As a matter of fact, those who responded included Tsar Alexander II, uh, James Polk, American president. He gave 50 bucks. Abraham Lincoln donated 10, which was $307 in this, our terms. And others from around the world responded. The Queen of England, Victoria, gave 2000 you may have seen the movies about Victoria recently, and there's an episode of that which is, we can't tell whether it's exactly true, but it is said that the Sultan uh, in, in, uh, of, the Ottoman, of the Ottoman Empire wanted to contribute $10,000. And as he was in London, he was told by the British no, you're going to have to reduce that. You can't exceed what the queen is giving. She's giving 2000 You can't give 10000 You're going to make her look bad. It was that kind of thinking that typified, in my opinion, the English government's attitude to what was going on in Ireland. It was a complicated situation. There was something called the Act of Union in 1800, which took away a separate Irish parliament and self-government and incorporated them into the parliament in London. It was that act of taking away self-determination that made the Irish, who had weathered other crises fairly well, made them incapable of their own independent response in this situation. The potato failure was just one part of this famine story. Ireland exported large amounts of agricultural goods to England. And as a matter of fact, Ireland continued to export large amounts of agricultural goods to England all during the time of the famine, all the while that the Irish were starving. Boats were being laden with corn and wheat and sent to England. Ireland was a place where the people had been dispossessed by English landlords and the small farmers were taken off the land so that beef might be raised 
to support the people and answer their hungers in London. Ireland was a place where the landlords, hungry for rent, subdivided their land so their tenants had plots of only a very few acres. The plots became so small that the Irish farmers could only grow one crop that would sustain them. That one crop was the potato. None of them had enough land because of these rent policies and leaseholds and subdivision. None of them were allowed to acquire or have enough land to grow a proper crop. And so the potato became emblematic. Oddly enough, in the story I'm going to tell about a ship that comes from Boston, Massachusetts, laden with food uh, to start the alleviation of this famine. Oddly enough, as we all know, a potato is an American vegetable. Potatoes started in Mexico. As a matter of fact, the potato blight that affected Ireland came from Mexico. If this sounds like a virus... Who knows? The blight traveled through North America and it centered itself around New York and New England where eventually the blighted potatoes found their way because of transatlantic travel in that day to Europe where it settled in Europe, Spain, England, Scotland, and Ireland. The problem with all these other incidences of the blight was that the potato was not, in these other cases, a mainstay crop in the same way it was in Ireland. It was an important crop. It put pressure all across Europe. The revolutions of 1848, the distress of the poor, put pressure all across Europe. But in Ireland, because of the land ownership, because of the governance, because of laws that protected the price of grain for English merchants and raised uh, tariffs, it became devastating. And the fact was that the government in London did not speedily respond. An interesting note, their first response when things were getting bad was to create a public works project. The theory was that, well, England would get some bridges built in Ireland, they'd put people to work, and um, then people would have money. It didn't work out that way. The people were paid such poor wages that they didn't have enough money to feed themselves or a family or buy a crop. And the money that they did have just went to prices that went up and up and up for scarce resources. There were no price controls, and so prices skyrocketed. The public works project was a boondoggle. And so, as outcry grew louder, a second solution was thought of, that of having soup kitchens, of feeding people directly. Now, for us in Bennington, it's interesting to know the Battle of Saratoga was won by the Americans, and the general who lost that battle was a person by the name of John Burgoyne, Gentleman Johnny Burgoyne, kind of a guy who kind of messed things up here for the British in this Hudson Valley area. John Burgoyne, he had a 
illegitimate son by the name of John Fox Burgoyne. John Fox Burgoyne was a military man like his father, and he was appointed to be in charge of the soup relief kitchen effort. I'm not sure if it was a hereditary type of thing or what, but Burgoyne messed things up. They cut off the public works projects early. They appointed Burgoyne. Temporary Relief Act ended. In February, Burgoyne had orders for feeding people by mid-March. He failed, like his father. He suffered a defeat. But he considered himself successful. What bureaucrat wouldn't? He churned out paper in these months. He created a bureaucracy, 14 tons of documents, 10,000 record books, 80,000 sheets of paper, 3,000 food cards so everybody could identify. 3,000 food cards were issued about who could qualify for relief. They had to be color-coded index cards. They regulated who should stand where in the soup line and what to do if a relief recipient failed to respond whether his name was called. Perhaps that person had died of hunger, waiting for Burgoyne and the English soup kitchens to render aid. Puglio, in his book, says, For weeks, bureaucrats hammered out soup kitchen rules and regulations, and while they did, no food was served. The ability not to care, and this was not a simple situation where people were unknowingly going without food. People were dying in the streets. People had no clothes on their shoulders. People had no homes. As a matter of fact, one of the rules of receiving aid in Ireland was that if you owned a plot of land, more than a quarter of an acre, to receive aid, even though you weren't able to grow potatoes on it or any other crop, to receive aid from the government, you had to give up your land. In other words, to receive aid, as they say, to receive aid as a man or a woman, you had to make yourself completely poor, divest yourself of everything. And who were those who bought up these lands that were so given up? The very same landlords who had created the problems in the first place. There are terrible stories about this time. Some people found that they did not even have words to describe what was going on. But in time, some of these horrors would, of course, reach other places. One British historian in the late 1900s said, and his name is James Anthony Freund, England governed Ireland for what she deemed her own interest making her calculations on the gross balance of her trade ledgers and leaving moral obligations aside, as if right and wrong had been blotted out of the statute book of the universe. And that's an English writer. When word reached America, there were Irish populations here already. And when in the winter of 1847, the ship Hibernia arrived here with news of the starving in Ireland and the mass catastrophe. It had started in 1845 when the blight first arrived and people understood there were problems, but it was 1847, Black 47, 
when people realized how many were going to be lost. The Hibernia arrived and people here in America started to act. America in 1847 was a strange place. And some of these acts of generosity I'm about to describe are going to strike us as odd against the backdrop. It's against a backdrop of a nation falling apart over the question of the slave trade, the institution of slavery. It was a nation that was enslaving its own people and witnessing them in degrading conditions and seemingly unable to do anything. It was a nation in 1847 who was going to war with Mexico against the wishes of so many, especially in the north. A war for conquest and perhaps more land. It was a nation of contradictions. It was a nation that was just getting to understand what a a train would be all about and what a telegraph was and suddenly this world was shrinking and suddenly this world understood that there was a place far off where people needed help. A nation which had made the Cherokee walk the trail of tears. All these contradictions. In some way, I almost think what we did for Ireland and what I will describe briefly was, I can't say virtue signaling because it was needed in Ireland. But it was a strange act for a nation so convoluted as we were in 1847. It was as if this nation were trying to say, we're caught in some bad things, but we want to do good. We want to come together. We want to put some things aside. We, we want to show what good people we are, and yet unable to do it in their own house. Perhaps that, to some extent, explains what was going on. Even the prejudice that the Irish suffered in America seemed to be put aside for an ability to prove that you could care for the Irish in a distant land. The Hibernia puts into port, and on February 7, 1847, Bishop John Fitzpatrick in Boston, Massachusetts, wrote a letter and a speech to a meeting about what was going on and described Ireland as she forgets her past griefs. She no longer laments her lost liberties, nor complains of the galling fetters that still bind her, but she bewails now her sons and daughters and her little children suffering, starving, and dead. The situation in Bishop Fitzpatrick's view was different. He said, men that are our brethren walk the streets like specters, crawl over the ground like worms, and die because they have no food. The words of Bishop Fitzpatrick were echoed in New York and Philadelphia, New Orleans, were heard in Washington, D.C. as well. There were associations being organized, trying to raise money for relief, And as a result of what Bishop Fitzpatrick wrote, money was raised among the Irish and Catholics. Interestingly enough, he had raised $20,000 in that time's money by the end of the month of February. Burlington, Vermont, 
The church in Burlington, the Catholic Church, gave $442.54. I include the pennies here because the pennies were everything to a few of the people who contributed here. In Bellas Falls, there was a sum of $100 written by one Catholic priest. Great Barrington, Massachusetts, contributed to the Boston Fund a sum of $35.25. And there's a list throughout New England of people who pulled together this way. But here was the problem. Money raised would go to England, and English merchants would buy food at inflated and protected prices. And where would that food go? Eventually, maybe, through Burgoyne's efforts into some thin soup if someone was alive to hear their name called. And so a different plan was underway, a plan that would create a direct shipment of food to Ireland, a plan that was hatched in America, both in New York and Boston, a plan that was devised even in the halls of Congress. It was the first time in America when we as a nation, the first time when we as a nation would move to support another country, not in war or for war, but for humanitarian purposes. On the 7th of February, I mentioned in 1847, Bishop Fitzpatrick spoke. On the 9th of February in Washington, D.C., Daniel Webster spoke about this need to those in Washington. On the 18th of February in Fanel Hall in Boston, there were between four and 5,000 people gathered to create a New England Committee for the Relief of Ireland and Scotland. It was a committee of Brahmins, of the elite, but they were acting in concert with others. And so, on February 21st, just a few days after that Fanel Hall meeting, A sea captain and merchant, an old Yankee by the name of Robert Bennett Forbes, made a proposal. His idea was to, because all the merchant ships were quite employed, his idea was to take a United States naval vessel and to use it for civilian purposes to provide food for the Irish. This was right in the middle of the war against Mexico. And the proposal was floated. Forbes thought that the USS Constitution would be just fine for this. Others had different thoughts about whether they should use such a hallowed ship and wondered whether the British would appreciate seeing the Constitution going back into their harbor in Ireland. Instead, they found a ship called the Jamestown, and they loaded it with over 800 tons of food. This United States naval vessel, property of the U.S. government, given to a private individual to crew with his private volunteers, they removed the guns, or all except four of the guns, and they filled it with food. Interestingly enough, the process began of filling the food began on the 17th of March, St. Patrick's Day. And those who had volunteered to fill this food 
were a group, the Boston Laborers Aid Society, mostly Irish. Captain Forbes said uh, to them on that day in thanking them that all good saints may bless this enterprise. That on the 17th of March. This was the first time that the U.S. Congress agreed to the use of American warships on a humanitarian mission, writes Puglio, and to place government warships in private hands to transport private contributions to a foreign country. And it was in the declaration that Congress agreed upon for the purpose of transporting to the famished poor of Ireland and Scotland such contributions as may be need for them, their relief. Where did these contributions come from? They came from the fields of New England. They came down rivers. They were collected and brought to the port of Boston. They were collected and brought, brought to the port of New York. They were collected and brought to Philadelphia. They were collected and brought to New Orleans. It wasn't an old nation that did this, but a young nation that had bounty. But the people who gave this food gave something that would either have been their income or an additional part of their winter's store. They gave of themselves and they gave fully their sacrifice. And it was good that it was in food. That was the currency. And that was a currency that the people could pay. And that was a currency that these people in America did pay to help fellow human beings. While a war raged in Mexico and while people stayed up and tossed and turned at night wondering how it was that another human being could be enslaved, they found some way to say, at least I can do this. And perhaps in time, they would do more. The collection was all over the United States. In Philadelphia, the Quakers were particularly strong in this work. In Philadelphia... It is said that there were Catholics and Methodists, Quakers, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Lutherans, Mormons, and Jews, and probably more than that. And if we, call, and if we include the contribution of the, uh, the Ottoman Sultan, there were also Muslims, all to relieve the needs of a fellow human being far away. All told, after the Jamestown sailed into the Cork Harbor successfully after its voyage. There would be 118 ships from the United States laden with food for Ireland. It didn't stop a million people from dying. It didn't stop others from living through with nightmares for the rest of their lives and etching something onto the minds of the people of Ireland that they shall never forget. But 118 ships sailed and $545,000, close to $135 million in today's currency of aid flowed that way. It's a 
surprising story and a relatively good one that makes us feel good. I go to Ephesians, the very last of what Paul is saying. For a grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. I'm not going to get into the big theological um, discussion here, but the point here, and Paul is often thought as someone who elevates grace over works, and by grace, Paul says, we are saved. But what are we saved for? Paul is clear about it. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, for which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. It's not enough to say you have religion. It's not enough to say you've attained comfort on some street in London and do everything properly. It is only that you do good works, that you recognize in fellow people their condition and that we respond fully to them and to their needs. That is what God calls us to do. And that is why, in some sense, this serpent of hunger is held up to us today, that we may look upon it. And so, by looking upon that and understanding that, whether it's famine or slavery or injustice, that by looking upon it, we may understand what that is and seeing it, that we may be healed through this gospel that calls upon us, children of God, and the good works that we may do. Amen. This is an interesting hymn we've sung now for several years at this church. It has to do with Ireland. The day of the Lord is at hand.
The only thing I left out of my sermon was the, uh, when Captain Forbes arrived in Cork Harbor, one of the things that was played was the tune Yankee Doodle. And I just wish that uh, General Burgoyne's uh, son was there to hear that tune played again. Poetic justice. I'd like to welcome you back to the Old First Church. We had an annual meeting this past week. We were in the church, some 22 of us and others online. And those who are online who might be still listening online, everyone is online this Sunday, uh, you should know that um, we're working on the audio and hope to have a better product. This Sunday we're here preparing this Sunday service with a bit of an experiment so that in the next few weeks we might have a usable live stream that we can put out. I regard it as partially successful, the fact that we were able to do parts of the annual meeting in the way we did. And for those who had a less than acceptable experience online, my apologies. We're going to work on it and make it better. That's all we can do. Those are the announcements that I have. I want to thank Jean Marie Callahan for being here with those Irish hymns seem to be right in her fingers. I want to thank Nancy Andrew. So, Thanks to Jean Marie and Nancy Andrews. Uh, the morning offering can be delivered to the Old First Congregational Church, One Monument Circle, Old Bennington, Vermont, 05201. If you're not, if you're at home and want to help us out, that's one way of doing it. And the morning offering for the work of the church will now be received.
give thee but thine own, whatever the gift may be, all that we have is thine alone, a trust, O Lord, from thee. Let us pray. Dear God, open our eyes to this world, to each other. Open our hearts to your presence. In this time of Lent, keep us hopeful by your wisdom and your guidance, your word. This day, O Lord, we remember all in our family who are not well, who struggle with various illnesses and challenges. We remember them and pray for their health. We remember, too, our families and pray that through these difficult times they may be strong, give us patience, and give us a sense of goodness and light and life that is to come in our lives, in days ahead, and in your word forever. We give you thanks for those who help us. We ask for your presence with us as we face days ahead. We ask that we might be people of good works, that we may have your grace to live in faith, to trust in Christ, and so to act in this world, to help one another, to understand, to heal. We pray for our earth as this spring season is soon upon us. We pray for our nation. We pray for all nations of this world. Allow us to respond again and again and not be discouraged, for we do these things in Christ's name. Now we pray to you in silence. Amen. And as Jesus taught us, we pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Our final hymn is the Londonderry Air.
And now may God bless us, keep us. May God's face shine upon us and give us peace this day and evermore. Amen. Thanks for listening. Have a good day. Be of good cheer and live your faith in the coming days. Check again next week for another one of these services. Permission to podcast and stream the service music is granted under license number 3009679 from CCLI with all other creative rights reserved.